Good morning. Welcome to In Other Words. I am your host, Susan Scher, and my guest today is Dr. David Gruder. He's been hailed by the media as America's integrity expert. Welcome, David. Well, thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, integrity is not just keeping your word. So I'm not going to guess. I'm going to ask you what else it is. <laughs> well, you're quite right. There are three parts to integrity. There's integrity with ourselves. There's integrity with the relationships that we have. And there's integrity with the collectives that we're a part of, whether that's our family or a business or a social group or uh, society uh, in general. So any... Uh Anything that's more people than you that you associate with and work with is a collective. Anything that's more than me and, or me and another person. Okay. All right. Is a collective. Okay. And so like a church group or temple group mm -hmm. would be part of that? Okay. Yes. Absolutely it would. And so keeping our word is... If we, if we expand that to the broadest understanding of that phrase, there are words that we keep with ourselves, the commitments that we make with ourselves mm -hmm. that we are in integrity with or not in integrity with. There are commitments we make to other individuals that we are in or out of integrity with, and there are commitments that we make to collectives that we're a part of that we're in or out of integrity okay. with. Okay. So, so, so being a person of your word doesn't just mean doing what you tell others you're going to do, but it means being integrity with yourself, with, with, your, with your values, acting in accordance with your values. Is that right? Very much so. That's exactly correct. Okay. And the third one was with your community. Yes. Okay. So that would mean your family, your um, office or whatever else involves several people? Yes, uh, uh, your, uh, the community-based organizations, service organizations are involved with religious or spiritual organizations, and society in general. Okay. So integrity involves um, doing what you say, but being uh, functioning in all three of these arenas and being in line with your core values. Is that right? Yeah. And I'm not hearing I you. I can take that maybe a step further. Okay. Please do. You there? So yes. you were going to expand upon the definition of integrity. Yes. If we look at integrity from the point of view of how the dictionary defines it, Mm -hmm. The dictionary defines integrity as a state of being whole and complete in relationship to some ethical or moral code. Ah. And it's a very interesting sounding definition. The problem is what defines whole and complete and whose ethical or moral code are we talking about? <laughs> so, you don't think of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so the... Dictionary definition of integrity falls in a classification that I refer to as true but not useful. Okay, okay, yeah. And in order to make that useful, if we could find 
a way of understanding wholeness and completeness that is cross-culturally relevant and accurate and that uh, defines an ethical code in a form that people can agree upon across cultures, then we're in business. Okay, now is that realistically ever going to happen? Because different cultures have dramatically different values. Precisely, and the answer that I'm so excited about is, yes, it can happen, it does happen, it's, it's happening right under our noses, but we just don't have the framework to help us see it. Can you give me an example? Well, I can give you the framework. Okay. See, my, uh, the ironic part is that it's through my study of sustainably happy people that I came to appreciate what whole and complete looks like cross-culturally. Mm -hmm. Because sustainably happy people have three priorities that they live in alignment with and in an, in an integrated way. Okay. They report that they are who they are, that, they, that they're being who they truly are, which is authenticity. Mm -hmm. They report that they feel connection and bonding with others, with people who are important to them, mm -hmm. and they feel like they have positive influence in their chosen spheres of influence. So that's authenticity, connection, and impact. And people who are sustainably happy appear to be happy in all three of those areas. They feel authentic, connected, and impactful. Uh, so in looking at sustainably happy people, what they taught me is three core drives that all of us human beings have, regardless of the culture we're in. It's the drive to be who we truly are, which is authenticity, mm -hmm. the drive to bond with others, which is connection, and the drive to influence the world around us, which is impact. Well, here's what that has to do with integrity. Authenticity is self-integrity. Connection is relationship integrity. And impact is collective or societal integrity. So... Being whole and complete means being authentic, connected, and impactful. When we are making our choices at the intersection of authenticity, connection, and impact, then we have an ethical code for making choices and making commitments that is also cross-cultural. Okay, but let's take the first example that comes to mind is, is the, the Far East because they... Th their view of life, or their value on life, is, is not less than ours, but it is different than ours. Uh, unless things have changed, honor matters more than life. Is that still true? It used to be. Well, whenever we're engaging in these kinds of um, sweeping generalizations, we're, we're going to be wrong as often as we're going to be right. Because what you just said applies to this culture, too. Okay, I'm thinking of the story of the seven samurai. But that's, forget that. That may not be practical in today's world. Honor is very important to, uh, to many people in the United States who consider themselves to be patriots or people who are in the military. Um, uh, one of the reasons that Klingons and Star Trek <laughs> is, uh, are so popular among certain 
Americans is because they place honor above everything else. So to create these cultural distinctions that say, well, this culture values honor and this culture doesn't, I think is, uh, it takes us in, a, in an unuseful direction. That, that isn't exactly what I meant, that they don't honor it. But I remember, um, and again, this, this may be the Times, uh, years ago I remember a teacher saying that when they tried to take Shakespeare into some African countries, they didn't get it because death didn't mean as much to them as it did to Shakespeare and the, the Western world that appreciates him. Right. Now, these, what you're touching into here are the cultural differences, cultural, uh, cultural relationships with death. And even in the United States uh, and throughout the technological world, different subcultures have different relationships with death. An atheist has a different relationship with death than someone who believes in, uh, in uh, the eternal soul. Someone who believes in reincarnation has a very different version and, and relationship with death than someone who doesn't. So these are, the, to me, the, these differences are window dressing that oh. cultures throughout history have made so important that they've been willing to go to war over. So what you're saying is take all of that away and communication happens much more easily. Yes. When we're at the level of intention, when we're at the level of wanting support to support our own and each other's authenticity, connection, and having positive influence or positive impact on the world around us, then we start opening up doors for building bridges and finding common ground that is the foundation of collaboration. Now, authenticity, it's, it's got to start there, doesn't it? I'm, I'm delighted you asked that, Susan, actually, <laughs> because what I have found is that it depends on whether you're asking that question of someone who's primarily a self-improver, primarily a connector, or primarily a do-gooder. And ah. I don't mean do in a negative sense. I mean in a positive sense here. The philanthropist of the community. Right. So the person who is all about social change, they don't believe that it's, it all starts with, with an individual. They believe it starts with changing the, the cultural milieu, cultural context, and then the individual's shift in response to that. Mm -hmm. People who are connectors primarily believe that it all starts with the bond. It all starts with the bond between people, and that's what's what informs and, and draws out of us our authenticity. And people who are primarily self-improvers say, well, it all starts with us as individuals. And people who agree with Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> he was starting with the man in the mirror. <laughs> right. right. But, but that is a widely held view, at least in this culture, isn't it? It's a widely held view in this culture. It's certainly a widely held view in my profession of psychology. No question oh, yeah, about it. would be. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I have found, I, I, I've been taken to task by, uh, by people who are very active in the international community who have, who have initially said to me when they've started to get to know me, they've, they've kind of come clean and said to me that, uh, that, they can do very well in doing positive good on a 
uh, on a national, international, global scale mm -hmm. without having to do personal development, thank you very much. Now, by the time <laughs> I'm done with them, they're not quite so, so convinced of that stand anymore. But there are these different perspectives depending on whether you're primarily a self-improver, primarily a connector, or primarily a do-gooder. But you, there are numerous examples of what you're talking about because there's the quintessential image of the successful businessman who's lost his wife and family. I mean, he's been in integrity, possibly with himself, I don't know, but definitely with his community. Yes. And there are also examples of people who are so passionate and devoted to their um, their calling, their their art, let's just say, um, mm -hmm. as a for instance, because uh, I'm now right now thinking of a particular individual okay. uh, their, to, uh, with their art that they're they're um, not making a living and not supporting themselves and a drain on society and uh, and they're feeling abandoned financially by their family and their loved ones. Well, boy, that goes into a whole lot of other stuff. Would you say this person is in integrity with him or herself? No. Does this person think they are? Yes. Then how do you know? Great question again, Susan. Thank you. When we define self in a one-dimensional way, as it, for example, in, in this particular person's example, this particular individual defines self as authenticity, as just being himself. Okay? okay. And if self is defined in that one dimensional a way, uh -huh. then we're in trouble. Yeah. Because a whole and complete self is one third me, mm -hmm. one third we, and one third us all. So, how do you communicate with this person that he's not in integrity the way he believes he, himself to be? What I did with him first was that I had him describe to me his level of happiness and the sources of happiness and sources of unhappiness that he experienced. And sure enough, he defined his happiness around his artistic expression and defined his unhappiness around everything else. <laughs> and so when I shared with him from there what sustainably happy people seem to embody, mm -hmm. which is that combination of authenticity, connection, and impact, where wholeness and completeness is one-third me, one-third we, and one-third us all, he looked at me and he said, how come I've never heard this before? How come I never heard this in all of the years I was in therapy where the therapist was just trying to get me to be me? <laughs> and this is where I have a personal problem with the, um, the human potential movement as it was in the late 60s and early 70s. You mean the very me-centric the me-centric version of the human okay. potential movement. Now, of course, we've come a long way, baby, since then, which I'm very grateful yeah. for. But I was indoctrinated as the... I'm 59 now, okay? And so mm -hmm. I was indoctrinated into... And looking damn 60s. good, by the way. Well, thank you. <laughs> the late 60s, early 70s version of the human potential movement. Uh -huh. And as much 
as I got huge value from my involvement with the movement at that point in my young life, mm -hmm. I also never fully signed on to the, uh, the I do my thing, you do your thing, and if you've got a problem with what I'm doing, that's your problem. I call that the enlightened person who has no idea what enlightenment is. Right, right, <laughs> where they're using enlightenment or human potential as a hiding strategy rather than using it for all of the gifts that it can offer in helping us become whole and complete and integrious. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you one way you can tell if somebody's uh, truly enlightened as opposed to saying they are is if they're saying they are. Yes. <laughs> because they're not if they're saying they are. If I've got to say it, I'm probably not it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a guy once said, I'm a man of few words. Meet, talk. I'm like, okay, you just used more words to tell me you're a man of few words than to say what you <laughs> wanted to say. <laughs> you know, if you had just, like, said the two words, I'm pretty sure I'd have figured out the rest. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can rest assured that I've never said I'm a man of few words. <laughs> I personally am glad for that. Now, there's one thing I want to talk about. There's some other things about integrity. One is a lot of people, <clears throat> I think, don't realize their responsibility to the other person. It's not just keeping your word. It's, well, well this is your field. You tell us what it is. Well, where, what you're leading up to is the connection between responsibility and commitment or responsibility and integrity. Well, or and, and agreements. Oh, and agreements. Well, yeah. I mean, that's such a very interesting uh, question that, that ties into our understanding of what accountability is. So if, if I make a commitment to you, um, let, let's, you let's just use a real, a real example. Okay. We, I made a commitment to you and, and you to me about what time we would start to record this interview. Okay, yeah. And so if I didn't show up at the time that we had agreed, then my impact on you for not having shown up would be exactly the same whether I didn't show up because I forgot, because I made something more important, because, you know, it, uh, the, my reason is irrelevant to your impact. In other words, it can be a really good, legitimate reason that anybody would say, hey, you made the right choice. It still has the same effect on me. Exactly. You're listening to, in other words, part of PWN Radio's Women in the Morning. This is a pre-recorded show. You know, something else just occurred to me. You live on the West Coast, right? Yes. Um, he's nodding his head. You can't see that. Yes. Um, and I live on the East Coast. So part of my responsibility was to say, four o'clock, whose time? Yes, very good point. And apparently when I said yes, when I was nodding my head, the uh, audio must have kicked out or something. <laughs> no, you weren't talking. You were just nodding your head. That's very funny because I was saying yes. Oh, okay, then the audio kicked out, yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Um, so, yes, you're, yeah. <laughs> now I completely forgot the point you were making. The point is that part of your responsibility in, in maintaining integrity is being crystal clear to the other person what you are agreeing to. 
Yes, I refer to that, and I'm not, I didn't make up this phrase, but I like it a lot, and that's why I refer to that as a check for understanding. Mm-hmm. I always check for understanding. So in my emails, for example, <clears throat> when I set times, I will always follow the time by what time zone I'm referring to. So if it's 1 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time or Eastern Standard Time versus um, uh, 1 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time, well, that's a three-hour time difference yeah. right there. Because you're at 1 o'clock, or you were when, you, when we first called. Right, right, and you were at 4 o'clock. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So part of being in integrity is being very clear and checking to make sure that everybody is agreeing to the same thing. Yes. Checking for understanding is very important because the brain is wired for closure, the way the, way the neuro, uh, neurological researchers say it, okay. which basically means that we are storytelling machines. We tell ourselves uh, interpretations and stories about what things mean. And as soon as we've stumbled into an interpretation or a story that satisfies or makes sense to us, our brain comes to rest. It comes to a state of closure. Thank you. Thank you. That explains so much. <laughs> and so, so our responsibility is to go a step further and not just settle for our own brain, brain's sense of closure, but to make sure that what we got closure on is what the other person got closure on as well. So we have to actually override a natural tendency. What happens if you fall out of integrity? Well, the first, the first thing that happens is we're human. Okay. <laughs> I can go into some pretty good shame uh, around that. <laughs> I can lay some pretty good guilt trips. So first thing that I have to do when, mm-hmm. I, uh, when I fall short in integrity is I have self-forgiveness to do so that when I go to the person that I have been out of integrity with, mm-hmm. I can go to them from a centered, grounded state rather than a shamed, um, uh, disempowered state. And that's the way most people do it. Mm-hmm. And it actually gets boring. I had somebody completely forget about a call that we had arranged. And several hours later, when he finally got to me, he was falling all over himself, apologizing. And I'm like, okay, you apologized. You screwed up. We all do that sometimes. Can we move on now? And he was really stuck in apologizing. Well, of course, Susan, because if, if I beat myself up worse than you would beat me up, then I've taken the sting out of it because at least I was in control of the beat up. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> so you're beating yourself I, up instead of me beating you up. Right. And I, and I don't say that to support that strategy. I think it's a, it's a non-helpful strategy, but I, I'm just trying to illuminate what the internal mindset is that fuels that kind of strategy. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that unhealthy? I mean, I have my views, but you're the doctor. Why is that an unhealthy strategy? Well, because if I'm in an internal beat-up state, then I have, I have forgotten where my alliances and my allegiances really are. I've temporarily made my inner critic my higher power. <laughs> That's a big problem just for starters. The bigger problem is that when I'm in an internal beat-up, 
I am not really capable of being fully responsible with you. I can't just simply say to you, here's my part in the breakdown between us, and here's how I propose to repair that. And I also can't really turn to you in a, uh, if, if the conflict or if the breakdown was co-created, I can't turn to you in an, in an equal-to-equal collaborative way mm-hmm. and, and, and ask you to teach me what your unintended role in the breakdown was, if it was a co-created breakdown. Knowing somebody, like, there are certain clients I have that I know I have to remind them. There are certain ones I know I don't ever have to talk to them. They're going to be where we agreed when we agreed. Right. And again, when we come back to that level of responsibility, which is how we got talking about these dimensions in mm-hmm. the first place, uh, I, I, in the end, am responsible for deciding whether I make a conscious and co-created agreement with someone around how that reminder process is going to happen, whether it's going to involve me or not involve me. I'm the one who's responsible for deciding whether I choose to engage with individuals who need reminders. I might choose to do that. I might not choose to do that. That's entirely up to me. The point that I'm trying to make in the context of responsibility is I am the one who's responsible for all of those decisions. Okay. So to sum up, basically, if you are out of integrity, own it, forgive yourself, and then discuss it with the other person. Would that be accurate? Own it, yes. Uh, uh, Forgive myself and then debrief with the other person where I disclose my usually unintended part in Uh the breakdown. And if the other person had an unintended part in the breakdown, I refrain from telling them what that was, but (laughs) instead uh, become very teachable and invite them to teach me what that was in the spirit of us creating agreements in the future that are more reliable than the agreement that broke down turned out to be. Right. So you don't say, oh, I'm so sorry, I did this now. <laughs> Here's what you did. You, you you resist that temptation, right? Yes. And and we talked about too that there are times when being out of te- integrity is the correct choice. Oh yes. There are times when it's appropriate that something becomes more important than an existing commitment that I would never have known to anticipate ahead right. of time, and. That kind of situation also requires repair, though. Just because that situation might have come up, that's that you would. If if I needed to rush someone to the hospital, mm-hmm. you would be. I know you well enough to know that you'd be the first person to agree that my doing that and handling that unanticipated emergency was more important than my keeping our appointment for this recording. Of course, yeah. And at the same time. There's a broken agreement between us that I have a responsibility to repair with you. So how would you go about repairing that? What I would do is two parts. Number one, I would, I would offer some kind of, of um, symbolic gesture to you that lets you know that I'm really committed to my word to you. So... 
might be that I send you a、uh, a lovely e card. Okay. For example. Okay. And then above and beyond the symbolic. So, in other words, a a way a normal person who doesn't have psychology training would say it is, "I'm sorry, I blew it." I do that sort of thing. How can we make sure? How can you help me、uh, keep my word on this? And of course, like in the case of this one guy, it would have been to remind him the the day before or the morning of or something like that. Yeah, that's very very good. Now, this kind of integrity that we're talking about in the workplace, this would translate. Uh, well, pretty much the exact same way. It's just that the hierarchy is different, correct? Mm-hmm. It translates. Yes, it does translate almost identically. But of course, the hierarchy, the power structure, and the performance expectations are different. But even、uh, if the boss is the one who's out of integrity, it is the boss's responsibility to get back in integrity with his employees, correct? Oh yes, it is. Very much so. Yeah, because a lot of bosses are a little afraid to do that because they think that admitting a weakness is showing that they're weak. Precisely. In other words, they're afraid to do something like this because they have had faulty training in leadership. Okay. <laughs> And this is one of the things you talk about. This is one of the things you do, isn't it? Right. Exactly. Yeah. What I do with business people is I help them、uh, become fluent in developing effective commitments or agreements in the first place. Okay.、So、they are trust-promoting, accountability-capable、uh, commitments. And here's one thing I have learned partly through you, David.、Um, oh, just want to remind everyone: you're listening to, in other words, part of PWN Radio's Women in the Morning.、Um, Part of what I have learned from you is always get it in writing, not necessarily to hold the other person to what they said, but to make sure everybody's very clear what the expectations are. Absolutely, there, it, it, there's no way to be、uh, for me to be certain that what I'm thinking is what you're thinking, unless we have、uh, said. Things out loud to each other that help us both know we're, we're on the same page, and where we've memorialized it、mm-hmm. is, is actually the technical term for it by writing <laughs> it down because of another human factor, another human dimension, which is memory is unreliable. Memory plays tricks on us. It、and、does. So we might be completely on the same page about our agreement. Right now, but a week from now, or a month from now, or a year from now, we could end up having very different recollections of what that agreement was if it's not memorialized, if it's not in writing. Now I know that there are memories I have that are crystal clear, and I have learned afterwards that they are not accurate. That doesn't make them any the less clear in my mind. Correct. Correct. I had one of those in a very dramatic way. Do we have time for me to tell a very brief story? Well, we have time for anything because I can cut out anything I want. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. So、uh, this is a, this is from my personal life, and、mm-hmm. uh, I I believed up until I was in my twenties that when I、uh, when I was growing up as a child, there was a period of time in elementary school when my father 
strapped me when he hit beat me you with, with a, beat you with a strap. Okay. Right. Okay. And when I inquired of each of my parents separately about that when I was in my 20s, mm-hmm. both of my parents said the exact same thing. No, it wasn't your father. It was your mother. Oh, my gosh. I invented a, uh, a screen memory, a false story, mm-hmm. but I would have believed, I would have sworn on a stack of Bibles that it was true up that's... until that point in my life. Yeah, yeah. So that's why agreements need to be written down. Because memory is fallible. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. human. That's yeah. just human. Mm-hmm. And now, so agreements are about, about working with our humanness rather than pretending we're something other than human. Oh, now that's very good. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need contracts, would we? Exactly. If we were perfect and we were always 100% in integrity, we wouldn't... And our memory was 100% accurate. Yeah. In other words, if we, were, if we were something other than human, we wouldn't need contracts. So the point is, because we're human, we always need them. It is not an insult to either party to ask for a written agreement. Bingo. Exactly. Great. So what I do with, with businesses is, number one, I help leaders and their teams understand that. That there's nobody at fault here. It's, it, it's human dynamics in operation that requires agreements. So basically, you take it, uh, it's, if somebody, if a commitment is broken, the guy in charge or girl in charge has to say, okay, this is a break in integrity. How do we keep this from happening again? Precisely. Yes. Okay. One of the things I know about business is if the employees feel like they are part of the mission, part of the overall thing, not just working for someone, you have much more commitment on their part. Very definitely. And this is something else that I, that I just, it rocks my world to do, which is to help companies not only identify the business mission statement or, or refine it if they already have one, but to help each individual identify what part of their own personal mission statement do they get to express through helping the business achieve its mission statement and what specific contributions does the role or the job that they fill in that company do in service of helping the company achieve that mission. So it's kind of like, why am I doing this? How does this job resonate with me? And how can I help the company grow? Exactly. I call that vertical integrity or vertical alignment. Great. You're listening to, in other words, part of PWN Radio's Women in the Morning. This is a pre-recorded show. I want to take a little bit of a detour now and talk about your book. It's called The New IQ. You want to tell me about that? Tell us what that means, what it is? Sure. The IQ that that refers to is our integrity quotient. So the subtitle is How Integrity Intelligence Serves You, Your Relationships, and Our World. And what it is is a comprehensive cross-disciplinary roadmap to help people live at the intersection of their authenticity, their connection with others, and their positive influence in whatever their chosen spheres of influence are in the world. 
It's a roadmap for sustainable happiness. Okay, so that's not just conversation about it. This is, this is how you do it. Because that's one thing we have not talked about at all so far. Yes, this is how, this is, uh, the book is a how-you-do-it kind of book, and the accompanying new I, the new IQ workbook is a specific series of processes and exercises for actually implementing the how-you-do-it into the fabric of your particular life. Now, a couple of things I found on your site um, were, or, or looking at the book, the manufacturing consent. <laughs> uh, how manufacturing consent has manipulated you into believing the five biggest lies of our time. So, what's that about? Mm. Well, there are two forms of consent. Informed consent. In other words, I'm not being manipulated into saying yes. The other form of consent is called manufactured consent. And the person who turned manufactured consent into very reliable technologies for social engineering, mm -hmm. propaganda, and manipulating individuals into supporting product services, causes, and candidates, thinking they're doing that from their own free will when, in fact, it's been orchestrated and they've been manipulated into mm -hmm. providing that support. That's what manufactured consent is. Okay. And, and just this sounds mm -hmm. a lot worse than it often is. I mean, this is what advertising is based on. No, this is what manufactured consent advertising is based on. Okay, and the distinction? It's not what all advertising is based on. Okay, good, good. And the distinction would be? The distinction is that... Oh, by the way, I think you were going to say the guy who did this was um, Sigmund Freud's nephew. Yes, right? the father of modern public relations, right. Sigmund Freud's nephew, whose name was Edward Bernays. Mm -hmm. Not spelled like the sauce. B-E-R-N-A-Y-S. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and so you were, uh, you were asking... Give us an example. Oh, yes, an example of, of manufactured consent. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a great example. It's one of the most well-known products in the entire world. It's Coca-Cola. <laughs> okay? Okay. So Coca-Cola's ad campaigns are all about creating a perceived value of Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. So what's... What's the perceived value of Coca-Cola ad campaigns? What do they want us to believe Coca-Cola creates? Uh, well-being, community, camaraderie. Uh, right. Happiness, refreshment. joy, community. I want to make the world a better place mm -hmm. in perfect harmony, etc., etc. Not a lot of people know that commercial. <laughs> now, now I'm dating myself again, yeah. huh? Right. Uh, so Coke. Coke's perceived value oh, But is, wait a minute. That might be very significant. What they did, this was a very famous commercial in the 70s, which was the uh, just after the hippie movement. Right. And it was um, uh, young people. It was all about young people then. It was very it was much the me. voices. Yeah, this is the me generation. And they equated harmony and peace, because the Vietnam War was going on, Harmony and peace um, and community with Coke. Yes. And with Coke being the real thing. It's the yeah. real thing. They incorporated that phrase into yeah. the song. 
And of course, they used a song. I'd like to see the world come in perfect harmony. I don't remember all the words. That was real but, close. That was real close uh, to the right words. <laughs> and um, and they used a melody because me- uh, melody or music imprints in our brain in a different way than words alone. And because of that, the retention factor is way higher. So mm-hmm. that was a way of getting people to remember the manufactured consent advertising and one of the most successful ad campaigns in the world as far as i know yes now if we compare the perceived value or the manufactured consent value of coca-cola to its true value what's coca-cola's true value it tastes good to a lot of people and it quenches thirst well, actually, the thirst-quenching part is kind of interesting. That's right. Yeah, it doesn't, it does, really. It yeah. does taste good to a lot of people, including me. I actually like the taste of Coca-Cola. Um, and the reason it doesn't quench thirst is, you know, one of the reasons why it's as overwhelmingly sweet as it is is to cover up the amount of sodium in Coca-Cola. Oh, I did not know that. Why does Coca-Cola have a lot of salt in it? To get you thirsty. To drink more, yeah. Exactly. So if you can keep thirsty no matter how much you drink, you'll drink more. (laughs) And what's the true value as opposed to the perceived value of excessive amounts of Coca-Cola? Decreased uh, insulin uh, resistance. Your insulin system goes haywire Mm -hmm. and you become a carbohydrate addict, a sugar addict. Uh, You become obese. Caffeine Uh, addict, yeah and uh, develop uh, diabetes and other chronic illnesses that are connected with chronic long-term overuse of sugar, etc., etc. So there is a vast gulf, a gigantic grand canyon between Coke's perceived value, which, is, which has been embedded in society through manufactured consent, mm-hmm. and its true value. Which is basically that it tastes good. Well, its true value is that it tastes good at the expense of our health. So that is an example of manufactured hap- um, consent. That's correct. So it's equating it's, the product with something that has nothing to do with the product but is desirable? In this case, it's, it's manipulating people to purchase a product because they believe they're doing it out of their own free will mm-hmm. when, in fact... Propaganda techniques have been used to manipulate their free will, and they don't even know it. Now, can you give us an example that's not advertising? Sure. At the, uh, toward the um, point, point in Bill Clinton's first term in office when he was getting revved up for uh, getting reelected, mm-hmm. virtually nobody believed at that time that he had a snowball's chance in double hockey sticks of uh, of getting reelected not not the republicans not the democrats not the pundits nobody so bill clinton hired a political operative by the name of dick morris who was one of edward bernays's star students edward in bernays again is is sigmund freud's nephew the guy who the father of modern public relations right. okay. who created this whole field of social engineering and had Dick Morris be his re-election campaign chairman. And Dick Morris used all of the things he learned from Edward Bernays about manufactured consent 
to do what nobody believed was possible, which was to get Bill Clinton reelected. So what kind um, of things did he do? Well, what, what he did was that he, um, he looked at all of the overnight um, polls uh-huh. that were on public perception, public opinion, mm-hmm. and made sure that the very next day the messaging, the political messaging, manipulated those opinions in a direction that he believed would cause people to choose to re-elect Bill Clinton. For so instance? He, I don't remember the specific oh, content. Okay. Um, all I know is that this was the strategy that uh-huh. was used. Okay. And quite effectively, as we yes. know now. Um, on the Republican side of the um, of the equation, because this has been used across political and uh, and faith spectrums. I would imagine uh, it's been used quite a lot in those venues. Weapons of mass destruction being used as the rationale for invading Iraq, and this has nothing to do with whether or not we should invade. This is not mm-hmm. a political statement. This is purely a political example of manufactured consent. Manufactured consent strategies were used to position the weapons of mass destruction argument in the public's mind and in Congress's mind in such a way that they would get support for invading Iraq based on that argument, even though it was known that whether uh, that the question of whether weapons of mass destruction were being used, had been used, had been manufactured by Saddam Hussein's people was really very wide open to debate. But they, they selectively reported the side of that debate that said, yes, we think that he might have, as though it was fact. That's manufactured consent. We weren't provided with the full picture in order to make an informed consent choice. Now, some of these things, the five biggest lies, the version of happiness that you cannot attain, but that makes others rich while keeping you disempowered, a version of health that makes you sick and keeps you sick to make others rich, uh, a version of prosperity that has perverted capitalism by putting you in debt and keeping you in debt to make others rich, a version of patriotism that divides citizens against each other so the unscrupulous can retain or regain and expand power, problem-solving substitutes that prevent you from taking your power back and sabotage us from co-creating sustainable solutions with each other. So let's start at the top, and and if you can give us one practical example of it. A version of happiness that you cannot attain, but that makes others rich while keeping you disempowered. It was the 1950s version of the American dream. Mm -hmm. Which was all about conformity, overwork, and um, uh, excessive consumerism as the formula for happiness. Okay, which of course got everybody in debt or made them feel like they hadn't uh, achieved anything if they didn't. Uh, Correct. Okay. The version of health that makes you sick and keeps you sick to make others rich. Boy, this one, as someone who has worked in the alternative health care field for years, I know this one. Um, the AMA is, is still trying to convince Congress that supplements and vitamins can be dangerous for you. It's the pharmaceutical industry that is controlling AMA interests that is oh, doing okay. it. Oh, okay. Okay. And they have a huge, powerful lobby, don't they? 
Oh, yes. And that's why they are able to even get these questions brought up. The amount of funding that they pour into lobbying Congress uh, each day is obscene compared to what those millions upon millions upon millions upon tens of millions mm -hmm. of dollars could be doing to eradicate health problems in this country instead. Okay. A version of prosperity that has perverted capitalism by putting you in debt and keeping you in debt to make others rich. Well, that one's uh, pretty easy to understand because you have to have two cars. Huh. Right, of course. Yeah, and you have to have a three- or four-bedroom home. Absolutely. And, and I, if, you, if your income suddenly doubles, you have to have a bigger home and a better car, even if what you had was serving you quite well. Oh, for sure, yeah. because because that's it's those things that are supposed to make me happy. Mm -hmm. Okay, the version of patriotism that divides citizens against each other, so the unscrupulous can retain or regain and expand power. Well, this is obviously political, but can you give a um, an example of how it divides the citizens? Uh, because. On the surface, it's political, but the, the media plays into this, and, um, and special interest groups play Boy, into it. you want to talk about manufactured consent, the media, right there. <laughs> oh, sure. Absolutely. They are and masters so of it. What that is, is that um, they, you always have to follow the money. When political polarization came into um, dominance again... Mm -hmm. It does, it does uh, uh, periodically, like we had a lot of political polarization in the 50s around the, the communism, witch hunts, and, and McCarthyism. Right, right. And we had polarization in the 60s around the war in Vietnam, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and we obviously had a lot of polarization come back in our country after 9-11, and particularly around uh, the response in the Middle East and uh, in Iraq in specific. And then we had polarization take another step around Obama's election and re-election. And uh, when, when there's political polarization, there is, by definition, always a portion of the whole picture that's being presented as if it's the whole picture in order to manipulate public opinion. That, that is very true. People present their argument and don't say... But there is another side to this. Well, of course they don't say there right. is another side because they don't want people to even think about right. alone find out what the other side of it is. And it goes down to the very core underpinnings of forgetting America's mission statement itself. Uh, government by the people, of the people, and for the people? Shall not perish from the earth is the end of the, the Gettysburg Address. Oh, okay, uh, that one. But... Uh, yes, that's, uh, that's the essence of it. Uh, America's, uh, the Constitution's preamble is America's mission statement. And it basically mandates a, a country that is required to be a servant to its citizens, not to itself, not to special interests, but to its citizens. And in order to fill that mandate, it is required to function at the intersection of preserving individual freedom and promoting the common good. Okay. That's the mission statement. Problem-solving substitutes that prevent you from taking your power back and sabotage us from co-creating 
sustainable solutions with each other. So uh, what I'm getting from that is the way you make, the way you solve problems has been co-opted. Precisely. And we just described some of the dynamics of that co-opting. It's all manufactured consent. And there are, there are only three problem-solving strategies that exist. Coercion, compromise, and collaboration. Mm -hmm. Coercion is where I manipulate you into doing what I want you to do while you think you're doing it for yourself. Co compromise, the best case scenario in compromise is where all parties walk away from the negotiating table feeling equally ripped off. <laughs> Couldn't they feel equally heard and represented? Best case scenario, the compromise strategy is where I've given up the same amount that you've given up in order for us to come to an agreement. Okay. So it necessarily implies a negative. That's correct. Okay. Whereas collaboration says we're going to get beyond our positions our surface positions, our posturing, mm -hmm. and we're going to look at the underlying intention beneath those positions so that we can collectively, we can together co-discover what serves highest interest, what, uh, what solution uh, uh, honors the, in, the higher intentions of everyone involved, even if that solution looks nothing like anything any individual or group proposed in the first place. And that is where I somehow lost the rest of the interview. David, thanks again for joining us. We've been talking with clinical and organizational psychologist Dr. David Gruder, America's integrity expert, author of The New IQ. David's website is dr, as in doctor, Gruder, G-R-U-D-E-R, dot com. Once again, you've been listening to, in other words, part of PWN Radio's Women in the Morning. You can find us at pwnradio.net. I am your host, Susan Scher, and you can find me and my editing and writing business at inotherwordsgroup.com. Thanks for joining us. Join us again next week. Bye. In other words. 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 In other words.